Hashtag release the Marty Wolf cut. <laughs> release the Wolf cut. Release the Wolf cut. <laughs> the slime house a podcast rated pg for crude humor outrageous hijinks and mild language i'm max i'm jasper i'm jared i'm nelson today we're talking about a real slime heavy hitter 2002's big fat liar big shout out to our listener jaron ulrich who's been requesting this episode for a long time so i hope you're listening jaron and, and keep on enjoying it Jason Shepard likes to stretch the truth. Producer Marty Wolf has never told the truth. I think we just hit a kid. Um, I'm on the phone. Fate brought them together. Thanks for the ride, gentlemen. But a lie will keep them together. Big Fat Liar is already being touted as next summer's must-see movie event. That guy stole my paper. How'd you come up with this idea? Some ideas just come to you. Yeah, from my backpack, you loser! Pack your bags, we're going on the trip. After a 14-year-old boy's overdue writing class assignment is stolen by a hotshot film producer and turned into an upcoming blockbuster, he ditches summer school and travels to Hollywood with a friend to receive due credit and prove he is not always a big fat liar. This was a Universal Pictures release who has a very tight relationship with Nickelodeon and there was a lot of cross-promotion between the two brands. You'll definitely know it's a Universal Pictures movie because there are lots of universal specific jokes and a universal studios set backdrop here and speaking of nickelodeon the king of that channel at the time dan schneider is the writer on this movie and even though he's kind of come under some controversy now he still has a plethora of nickelodeon classics under his belt all that amanda show drake and josh zoe 101 iCarly, victorious just a true king of nick in the early thousands also on the nickelodeon side Current President Brian Robbins, director Good Burger, Shaggy Dog, a bunch of other classics, and Mike Tolan, who both produced this as well. And it was actually the first major feature of director Sean Levy, who would later go on to do Cheaper by the Dozen, the Pink Panther franchise, the Night at the Museum franchise, and of course producing, most recently, the Stranger Things television series. And also the upcoming Free Guy movie that was supposed to come out last year. Uh, God willing, it will come out this year. <laughs> yeah, it looks like it could be a Slimehouse movie, too. I'm not sure how like family-centered it's going to be, but it has some potential. Look out for those Green Lantern jokes. Um, <laughs> the cast is headlined by two of the biggest child stars of the early 2000s, Frankie Muniz, most known for Malcolm in the Middle, but also many other roles, and Amanda Bynes. And this was actually her first feature film role, but she was already a big star at this point, thanks to The Amanda Show. Which has a brief Easter egg, which I hope you guys caught the brief Easter egg with the dancing lobsters as they're running through the back lot. Oh, oh I did wow, not. Yeah. I didn't I'm catch that, to... but I'm glad you pointed it out. And these kids face off against Marty Wolf, the evil producer, who's played by Paul Giamatti, who is not necessarily a slime star, but for an entire generation of kids, this was kind of their introduction to him as an actor. And so, you know, I always think of him in more prestigious roles, but I, I always also think of him as the blue Marty Wolf in Big Fat Liar. <laughs> and then we've got some other actors in early roles, Donald Faison of Scrubs, John Cho, Sandra Oh, and then other cast members include Amanda Detmer, who plays the assistant, Monty, and then Amy Hill, who was previously seen in Cat in the Hat and Max Keeble's Big Move, so she was really going for a slime trifecta in this period of time. Can't believe how busy she was. So as we said, it came out in February of 2002, which is still very much the peak. It's right after 2001, where we have had the most titles, but really in the thick of it, only a couple weeks after our previously discussed Snow Dogs. So I didn't see this in theaters, but it was a personal favorite when it came out on DVD, and definitely for me a high watermark of, of the Slimehouse genre. Definitely kind of one of those first movies that pops up when you describe Slimehouse to people. 
seen in theaters. I wasn't specifically enamored with it, but I was very excited for this movie. The, the trailers were everywhere, and we would quote them all the time in elementary school. But I was very disappointed when really kind of the centerpiece joke of the trailer, which is this scene of Marty Wolf, played by Paul Giamatti, getting very angry and cussing, but instead of a bleep, he would honk his horn whenever it would, you know, say insert cuss word like son of a open the gate you coming soon to video and dvd and everyone loved that scene but it didn't show up in the movie (laughs) so we were i remember being very very disappointed and being like man like what that i that was that was one of the main reasons i wanted to see this I'm glad you reminded me of that because I forgot about that, probably because it was cut from the movie, but they did leave in the sticker on every trailer. It always ended with the tow truck driver saying, they told me I had to pick up a little blue car. They didn't say anything about a little blue man. Which it apparently was an improvised line. I was reading an oral history of this movie, apparently an improvised <laughs> line by John Gattins, director of Dreamer, which we previously covered. So shout hey. out to John Gattins for such a iconic line there. Wow. But yeah, as far as my experience with this movie, I'd never seen it until now. I'd always... The image of Paul Giamatti painted blue has been like very constant in my life, just always in the back of my head somewhere. It's just something that's always stuck with me just from seeing the the DVD cover and the poster so often as a kid. Um, I wish I would have seen this movie as a kid because watching it now, I had no idea it was so like... I knew he was a movie producer, but I didn't know it was so like inside Hollywood showbiz. And as a kid, I was really into that kind of stuff. I'd like career day for school. I went as like a movie producer. (laughs) (laughs) Which, if I can find that picture, very funny. I think I was trying to go for like kind of an early George Lucas Spielberg kind of look, but I do straight up just have like a Marty Wolf look in my school day. I have this like awful Hawaiian shirt, a weird little like goatee I drew on. So. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, th- I would have loved this movie, so I wish I would have known about it, but yeah, I'd never seen it until now. Yeah, I'm in the same boat as Max. I I remember seeing Snow Dogs in theaters right before this, but this kind of missed my radar, and that's what it is. But I did like watch a lot of E.T. and Access Hollywood and was interested in the entertainment industry world as a kid and so this would have been very up my alley i will say uh getting right off the bat i love movies that have like a trailer within the film like you know it's not necessarily a slime house thing but like tropic thunder is an obvious example of that this movie has that because big fat liar actually refers to the uh movie being produced by marty wolf mm-hmm. that's based off the short story that uh, our main character jace played by frankie muniz writes and there's a scene in this where Frankie Muniz and Amanda Bynes are going to the movies and they see this teaser trailer for a movie that actually hasn't been in, is still in pre-production and hasn't actually shot yet. And that made me think of something, which is, uh, this is a, there's actually some interesting tie-ins in the video game world for this movie, but uh, it made me think of how uh, one of the Splinter Cell games that came out around this time, um, there was a teaser trailer for a Splinter Cell movie that Paramount Pictures was going to make, but they never ended up even, like, casting the main character or anything for it. So I thought of that while watching this, just, like, kind of like those, like, what-if projects in the history of, you know, film that get shelved. I know Max has another kind of video game tie-in story. Actually, I was a big player of the Spyro the Dragon franchise as a kid. I had a lot of those games, and actually come to learn even more reason for why I should have seen this movie, the DVD had a special cheat code to where you could turn Spyro (laughs) the Dragon blue, much like Marty Wolf in the film. I definitely would have gotten a kick out of that as a kid. So, (laughs) but yeah, also um, as far as that, back to that trailer bit, I think it's so weird. Not only in the movie, does they, do they kind of have the trailer before this movie's been into pre-production? It's the fact that like, it doesn't look like like a, that much of like a blockbuster movie in the way that like you would expect. Like maybe they do a trailer like that for like a Superman movie, but not for Big Fat Liar, the fictional movie about a guy that grows because he can't stop lying. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think perhaps Big Fat Liar within the movie is also a Slimehouse movie. So maybe we have a Slimehouse movie within. <laughs> See, like I'm a sucker for te- like teaser trailers that don't actually have footage from the final film 
Yeah, I'm into that too. I mean, I remember the Star Trek trailer. There are a lot of trailers that were, were yeah, just that a, too. a teaser just for the trailer's purpose. It's worth mentioning not to get too hung up on reality in this because there's another Slimehouse movie within this meta world that uh, Marty Wolf is producing called Whitaker and Fowl, which is a cop and chicken movie that in the movie on Friday they are shooting a scene for, but on Saturday they go to the premiere <laughs> of the movie. They're doing so, some real some some you know, real late reshoots for, yeah, for this so, chicken. And cop. similarly <laughs> yeah, the timeline is very kind of condensed and moved around, but in a way that I think makes it feel so fun to kind of like enter Hollywood and kind of get to see, you know, the shoot day, the premiere and all that stuff. And the timeline is definitely not suspended in reality and definitely maybe through the lens of like how a kid perceives Hollywood to operate. Hashtag release the Marty Wolf cut. <laughs> release the wolf cut. Release the wolf cut. <laughs> oh, and one more thing. The, the Whitaker and Fowl movie has character posters in the background so it's a true slime house movie oh wow uh, so we yes. get three for the price of one with big fat liar you get three slime house movies i really like it because it kind of feels how i looked at hollywood as a kid especially as a like a young film fan in like 2002 like you go to universal studios or you go down hollywood boulevard and you just expect to like bump into a star or a director or producer like you can just walk on a film set in rewatching this i didn't realize how like hollywood this movie was like about the film industry and about kind of the behind the scenes of, of that world but now kind of like having worked in the entertainment industry and you know worked on back lots and things like that it's very very fun and it also kind of reminds me of we've talked about this before the Hollywood stars ride at California Adventure, which is a notorious, <laughs> which is a notorious <laughs> ride. But it's that same kind of attitude of, whoa, everywhere you look, there's funny man Tim Allen or there's Urkel, Jalea Love. You know, it's just like everywhere you look, there's a star. When in reality, like you can go a year without actually seeing somebody famous in Los Angeles. You know? Yeah, I've, I've always been kind of enamored with, like, the idea of, like, a Hollywood backlot, like, within the world of movies, just because I've seen that Pee-wee's Big Adventure was, like, a very critical movie to me growing up, so I watch that all the time, and that has, like, the climax is this big chase scene across the Hollywood backlot. It might be the Universal backlot. No, it's probably the Paramount backlot, because I think that's who put that out. But, yeah, it's a cross the back line you just see all these people in like crazy costumes always for some reason some people walking around dressed as gladiators i feel like you always <laughs> see when they show a back line. Um, there's a jerry lewis movie called the Aaron boy i really loved that this reminded me of too but yeah i didn't expect this because i hadn't seen it to be like such like a hollywood and the fact that it's like a kid's view of hollywood i think is a really good note because like you get so much, like, with the, when the scene where they first come into Hollywood, there's, like, palm trees, they're in a limo, they're sticking their heads out of, like, the top of the limo, which I feel like you see in a lot of stuff. I think Shrek also has a Hollywood scene where Donkey comes in like that to whatever their equivalent Shrek of Hollywood. Shrek 2. Shrek 2, yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah, I just love the whole, like, Hollywood backlot where, like, everyone's just walking around in costume, and it's just this absurd sort of, like, wonderland of movie characters and movie props. And this actually had a lot of licensing, which made it i think even more exciting I, I i was very excited to notice the gorilla suits from poison ivy's henchmen in batman and robin <laughs> <at one point. laughs> yes the part that i liked the most was when we stayed at the prop warehouse and in the wardrobe warehouse we find a set and it's you know we go in there and that's where we stay it's like a set of like a, a tv show or something and there's food and there's beds and it's our little hideout we did some lip service and cat in the hat to the idea of like a postmodern slime or meta slime kind of movie. And to me, this is more that. This is like probably the most meta slimy movie we've covered. Not just because of like these movies within movies, but also one particularly slimy um, set piece in this is the. It's, it's pretty. It's probably the most far fetched thing in the movie, which is saying something, but the two main characters find a hotel of sorts in the. Uh, costume room of the studio area and it has as unlimited coca-cola which is one thing but also it has the costume from grinch 2000 i think 
Yeah, the Grinch 2000 <laughs> costume on the one of the vehicle from the Grinch, I believe, yes, as well, shows up. Yep. So multiple Grinch things make an appearance in that, which I think that's like the slime centerpiece to me is this prop department. I think that's such a slimy yeah. setting for sure. And, and the montage of them going and trying these different things out. Totally. Well, it's an interesting take on this wish fulfillment theme that we often talk about. And usually wish fulfillment is high fantasy, you know, what if I couldn't tell a lie or something that is unrealistic. But this is a more tangible wish, but one that I think speaks to all of us given our shared interests. But I can remember as a kid feeling really resonant that like, what if a Hollywood producer took something you wrote as a kid and turned it into a movie and you had to go like chase it down and save the day that way? And I felt much more kind of wish fantasy out of that than a lot of other high fantasy movies. And in that moment that Max was describing of the parade of people in costumes, which is already kind of a look at like Hollywood in the silent era when that maybe actually happened. I mean, it's it's a recurring gag seen since, but it's not something to be found these days. But Frankie Muniz just says like, can we just take a moment and see how awesome this is? And I'm like, yeah, this is awesome. This is <laughs> This is like my type of dream as a, as a kid that like I would go to Hollywood to chase down a producer who had written, you know, my story into something. And and even there's a second part of the wish fulfillment, which is how they get there. Frankie Muniz like just says like he has a wad of cash and he's like, this is three years of yard work and babysitting money. And I remember as a kid being like, oh my gosh, like I could do this too if I just save my allowance essentially. And so I felt the wish fulfillment really strong in this largely because I love movies and I always have. And so it, I think it hit a particular chord in the slime house vein. Yeah. And just jumping right on the back of that, I think a lot of that kind of entertainment industry fantasy is one of the reasons why this film has kind of almost endured a little bit more than a lot of slime house movies in that it, it doesn't necessarily feel super dated, even though a lot of the references and, you know, jokes and cameos and cultural references are a little dated, but I think it's been kind of propelled in it, it's its popularity has been consistent because a lot of folks like us and as the entertainment industry, you know, becomes more young and becomes more focused on young people, you know, with the rise of social media, TikTok, things, YouTube, things like that. This movie still resonates so much with kind of a more modern audience as opposed to something, say, like snow day you know which we said has kind of not necessarily resonated as much yeah actually something else speaking on that something like i read in that oral history i was referring to earlier sean levy actually was saying that out of like all his movies he's made this is the one that like people like try to talk to him the most about and like that he has rewatched the most he says that he's had people over for like job interviews or industry parties or whatever and he has the monkey that Paul Giamatti holds so dear in this movie and people try to always want to get pictures with the monkey and stuff. So yeah, I feel like this movie is kind of a slowly developing like cult film among our gen, like people around our generation. I know people who have gone, it's like Marty Wolf for Halloween and stuff. So I think, yeah, around among like a very specific group of like people interested in movies that also are around our age, Big Fat Liars, kind of a critical movie in their lifetime. Uh, that makes sense to me in that this is one of the first Slimehouse movies that I rewatched as kind of an older kid or whatever. When I was in high school, I was visiting my cousin Aurelia in college and we like at a college party, they put this movie on and people were jamming <laughs> out to it, you know? And it's like, that to me was such a big like, whoa, like people go back and this, it was one of the first like nostalgia trips that I, I tripped on. I think one of the reasons this might you know, really resonate as people get older is that there are a lot of references to uh, older movies and adult skewing movies in this. And I think in the context of when this was released, this is a way to like make the parents happy too. But I think especially for us people who like, you know, studied film and what have you, uh, going back and like noticing how the score lifts parts of Psycho and the shower scene. And like there's a scene involving a car getting demolished that uses the the uh, motif from Jaws and also like there's like a western showdown that is very good bad and the ugly and then references to other you know 
visual references to John Woo movies, even. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was that. That's the one that really got me this time that I wasn't expecting. Was like the John Woo doves getting like mm-hmm. a specific reference. This movie's full of like inside Hollywood humor. I feel like that's the most kind of like, I guess not inside, but the most obscure joke they put in there. And it's all Universal movies too, which is very funny. Mm-hmm. Yes, like and even down to the one of my favorite lines is when Marty Wolf tells the main character Jason Shepard that okay, I'll call your dad. I'll give you credit for Big Fat Liar. And Saving Private Ryan and Aaron Brockovich. <laughs> For some reason, and I feel Aaron... like Aaron Brockovich was like a common thing to bring up as like a grown-up movie, like back in the yeah, definitely. <laughs> Which I love Aaron Brockovich, but it definitely does not feel like it's you know had a long cultural footprint, despite it still being quite relevant today in terms of its environmental themes. But I digress. Um. Max, I'll one-up you on the most obscure reference to a universal property in this. Did anybody else catch that when uh, Marty Wolf is taken off the helicopter and he comes into set and he looks like deranged as hell, did you notice that he has Brian Grazer's haircut? Is that a real thing? He does ha- He does have a very distinctive haircut. I did not notice that. Brian Grazer is, not- is known for the fact that he has spiky hair and in his book he wrote all about like the philosophy of that and it's it's a whole thing that in hollywood is known and when marty wolf rolls up to set only time he looks like crazy and he has the brian grazer haircut and considering (laughs) it's a universal movie i am 100 sure that's not an accident (laughs) that's very funny i i did not notice that at all yeah i had no idea like like i said earlier this was such kind of like an inside film industry kind of movie and that definitely feels like that type of humor like once you're making jokes about producers like i feel like that's when you get super inside like (laughs) yeah and that's one that would have no kids are gonna get that i mean i only got that because i have read brian grazer's book you know and so it's like it's super specific and i love it kind of reminds me of like shrek making fun of yeah that's what i was gonna uh, say shrek is like shrek is just like a big like eisner diss (laughs) really pretty much and like i feel like you completely miss that if you're not like caught up on the studio drama it's it's also very similar to in the grinch you know there's the ron howard bit as well oh yeah that's true where he does the whole ron howard little segment so we've seen meta slime before but just not on this level it's definitely self-referential in kind of the Hollywood way, whereas Cat in the Hat was almost like self-referential in the tone and attitude way, hmm. um, which I think are both meta in their own ways. And we'll see, you know, both of those kinds of meta attitudes echoed in, in many films down the line, especially, you know, stuff like Looney Tunes back in action. Yeah, I feel like kind of going back to the wish fulfillment and that to that prop department, I think that's like that section of that portion of the film sort of represents to me best like the combination of this movie's like kid wish fulfillment and like inside Hollywood because you get to see them kind of treating this prop and wardrobe department as like their personal playground and also you get all these kind of cameos in the background from these universal properties um there's one point amanda bonds is making a phone call she's like laying on the back to the future delorean which i Mm -hmm. think was a pretty like obvious one that they put in there and then uh, just this isn't super a reference or anything but just like the scene that i think represents how much of like a they're representing this as like the kids fantasy home is there's both like the montage scene of them trying on all the clothes and sort of messing around that's set to like a pop punk song and there's also one scene that for some reason really struck me where Frankie Muniz's character's on the phone, Jason is on the phone for a little while, and in the background, Amanda Bonds is just like hopping on some kind of inflatable yeah. while he plays pinball. And it's just like, to me, I feel like that represents like a child's fantasy more than anything. That like you're calling your dad, making up excuses at the same time you're just playing the game of pinball while your friend like plays around on an inflatable behind you. And I think that's. This movie, I feel like, is a little bit more subtle with how much of a wish fulfillment fantasy it is compared to something like max keeble or snow day but it's definitely very present as well we've geeked out a lot on kind of you know these these film and pop cultural references but bringing it almost down to its core that point max of you know this is a child's fantasy like 
And this kind of speaks to Jared's point as well about this being kind of a meta slime movie. This movie makes it very, very clear and known that it's a kid's story. The amount of times in which Frankie Muniz says, I'm 14, or I'm not 10, I'm 14, you know, stuff, lines like that, it makes it very clear that this is like, they want their target audience to know this movie is for you. It's not for anyone else. It's for you. To me, that's like so much of the Slimehouse attitude is like, and we've talked, we talk about this every episode, movies that are for kids in this time of your childhood that you are a little bit extreme in your attitudes. You do think you're the coolest cat around. And this movie, I think, really embodies that attitude and mindset a lot more than some of the other movies we've watched. Yeah, I think the opening of this movie is really critical to that because it opens up in a way that's kind of sim- like a very slimy way to start a movie, I feel like. Uh, Max Keeble has a similar opening, not identical, but similar, of uh, Frankie Muniz's character. He wakes up late for school, and the scenes like him rushing to get to school uh, gets like confronted by some bullies on the way. The lead bully, actually played by Taryn Killam, from SNL, another yeah. uh, early role from somebody. Mm. But yeah, uh, it's him coming into this classroom and just trying to make up an excuse for why he was late. And like the whole class is loving it. And like his friends are trying to help him get away with it. And that feels like the fact that the movie opens like that, I feel like really shows its cards as far as like the POV, the kid POV it's coming from. We've covered a lot of movies where somebody moves from SoCal, LA, and into another place, but this one's really interesting because it's kind of the flip of that, where it's set in this every town called Greenbury, Michigan, fictional suburbia place. And I feel like the opening that you're describing, Max, grounds the movie, but in a slime house way. It sort of like makes it feel like every kid, you know, but because it's relying on the tropes more than the rest of the movie, in my opinion. I feel like that opening scene has more Slimehouse feeling than the rest of the movie does because you've got him late for school, he's riding his skateboard, the bullies are giving our time, Smash Mouth jamming in the background, of course. The helps... same song that was heard in Snow Day. Come <laughs> yes. on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's <laughs> always <laughs> going down the slopes. <laughs> it's almost unbelievable when you hear a Smash Mouth. You're like, really? Even this one, too? It this like, yeah, seal of approval um, from those guys. And, and so I think it's, to me, I was like, wow, this is how they, like, convey to kids what is, quote, normal, because we, kids at this point understand the Slimehouse conventions, whether they knew it or not, we didn't know it consciously. And so I was really sort of wowed by how much of that was in this opening. A lot of these movies feature songs that either were like, would be popular to a kid, cool to a kid, or songs that I feel like a kid would find funny. Um, For example, like I'm Blue shows up, of course, yeah. when he's died blue, which I know was a song I thought was very funny as a kid. Uh, Eye of the Tiger kind of shows up. It's like in a, in a scene, which I feel like it's always kind of been mined as a source of humor to put it behind like a comedic training montage of some kind. So I think that's very essential. Um, and so, yeah, I think that, and then of course this, as we mentioned, this begins with Smash Mouth and ends with another very important band of Slimehouse, the Baja Men. <laughs> in this yes. film uh, can yes. you move it like this <laughs> the baja men were one of those groups that i don't think i knew anyone who actually really liked the baja men like <laughs> nobody had a baja men cd or anything but the infomercial for the record that that this song can you move it like this was on was yeah. on nickelodeon <laughs> constantly and it made you feel like man this song's a big hit but I don't know a single person who actually owned that. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure, like, only Who Let the Dogs Out was, like, a genuine hit for the Baja <laughs> Well, that, that's where, again, to my experience rewatching it with my cousin Aurelia in college, like, when this song came on at the end, everyone got up and danced to it. And it was, like, such a, like, like pure nostalgia to the veins, you know, because of that thing, Jasper, of like, no one was like a Baja men stan, but they were Nickelodeon watchers. And so like, as a result, we all just like ingested so much Baja men. (laughs) It's showtime. Hey, kids, I'm 
Wolfie the Clown. Ooh. And uh, I'm Mr. Funny Bones. Happy birthday, Darren. Oh, my God. In a time when a little lie can grow bigger and bigger, one man will pay the price. Next summer, people everywhere will stop and stare. Marty Wolf Pictures presents Kenny Trooper. Big, fat, liar. What do you think? Want to see it? See it? I think I wrote it. When we first kind of fell upon the Slimehouse list that Max made, I think one of the things that made it really stick was like the the camera work and some of the vibe that at the time just seemed normal like i said in max keeble but only with the benefit of hindsight is like whoa that's so oddly specific and there's a moment again to my point that like the beginning of this movie really grounds it in slimehouse jason's at summer school and the teacher is a bore as they would be at summer school and they shoot him with this low angle like distorted fisheye lens type of thing which is very similar to the way the principal is shot in Max Keeble. And I'm gonna, I wanna name this or come up with some identifier as just like the Slimehouse angle, because I feel like it's so hyper real. And it's, it's the kid's eye view. Kid's know? eye view, I love it, Jasper, yes. Because it's used to distort and show how bad some characters are. And you see it in Slimehouse in a way that it wouldn't fit in a movie nowadays, because it would be too hamming over the top but at the time it just felt so so perfect for what Slimehouse was trying to visually show we see that a lot in a lot of these movies and I think you know it's a it's a shot that is where the character that you're looking up at looks very domineering and villainous just specifically through camera positioning and then that really wide angle you know makes them even look larger than life we talk about this a lot with kind of how Slimehouse movies capture sports sequences or kids riding bikes or riding a skateboard, you know, somebody going off a ramp. It's usually shot from below, not from the side, you know, to make this whole world, this whole kid's perspective feel so much larger than life and bigger than it actually is. And it works. It totally works. It's it's not sometimes it's not the prettiest, but it, it definitely captures a very specific perspective of the world that you see when you're a kid. I mean, and like another way I feel like this kind of subverts the expected tropes that you see in this movie is that like every movie we've covered so far almost has this like underlying theme of like how the parents don't trust their kids enough. But in this movie, it actually establishes that that's for good reason. And I think that gives it a very distinct kind of flavor compared to most other Slime House movies we've covered. I think they knew what the tropes were when they were writing this, seriously. Yeah, that's, that's actually very. Point. That's a yeah, that's a very interesting point to think about because that is sort of like all these movies are about these kids being telling the truth and nobody believes them, and this is about that too. But yeah, like you said, it's based on the boy who cried wolf, like pretty obviously, especially once you realize that his name's Shepherd and the villain is Wolf. So. Oh <laughs> shit! Uh, very very man. clever screenwriting Holy from, shit. from Dan I didn't Schneider know that. in there. So, but Damn. yeah, so uh, so yeah, it's all about like trust and lies and all this which i think yeah very critical plot point when that's usually more of an aside and while we're on the topic of the marty wolf i feel like we should maybe get into him a little bit because i think he's might be even though he's an adult character maybe the slimiest character we have in here i mean definitely the most entertaining character i'd say the villains in these movies tend to be either authority figures or bullies in max Keel's big moves you had that they were separate. You had the principal's bad guy, and you had the you know enemies in your classroom. This one with Marty Wolf, you kind of have like he's like an amalgamation of those two kinds of antagonists in one. Yeah, it feels like he's just kind of in a like a a type, like playing the type of like the sleazy like blowhard producer yeah. that I feel like you see in a lot of Hollywood movies, but not very many like kids movies, which I feel like is what made him stand out a lot to me as you see kind of like the asshole producer shows up in so many like Hollywood satires and like 
like the player or something like that. But like here you see it kind of like toned down to like a level to make him seem like an asshole and be funny to kids, which I think is what makes him really distinctive. Cause it's like, while he is the authority figure, he acts really like goofy and childlike a lot of time, which made him read to me, even though like he is the authority figure, he's like a Hollywood mega producer. He kind of like read to me as more of a bully than that type, despite the fact that he's a powerful adult, just because there's so many scenes of this of him just, like, making a fool of himself. Like, he has the little monkey stuffed animal that's so precious to him. There's, of course, the the iconic scene of him dancing the hungry like the wolf in a Speedo and dying himself blue and stuff. And that, 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 that for some a reason, all, the, yeah. <laughs> for some reason all of that rings as more, like, bully to me than... I mean, it's, figures. it's, it's interesting kind of a, how he kind of, There's yeah. obviously an overlap between those two types of character tropes and kind of like a principal figure. And maybe there's some commentary about how, you know, awful producers are in Hollywood actuality. But I think... The it it line, feels specific. Yeah. It feels like they... They know the. They know they're pulling from reality in their in their writing and uh, write what you know. <laughs> I don't think you understand, Monty. I'm blue. Oh come on! Now we all have our off days. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean I'm literally, and I've got orange. <sighs> come on, Wolfman. Okay. I have to say, I think the longevity of this movie is because of Paul Giamatti's performance. I really think that yeah. he mm-hmm. he's a great actor, obviously, but he just fully committed. When he's dancing to Hungry Like the Wolf in a Speedo, I just, I almost rewound it. I was like, man, <laughs> he just is going for it and he's enjoying himself doing it as opposed to like, uh, one for the kids. Like, he doesn't have that attitude at all. Like, he's yeah. committed to this world and the insanity of Marty Wolf. You don't think of him as a slimy actor, as we've said, but, like, he can do hammy and silly really well. And another movie that I think of that had him, where he, it wasn't a slime house movie by any means, but he had a performance in it that was, like, pretty slimy, actually, is The Amazing Spider-Man 2, actually, where he plays the rhino. Mm-hmm. And, like, he just, he is just, like, it, it reminds me of, like, Martin Sheen in the Twilight movies, where it's just, like, <laughs> they had this actor here that's just, like, way too good for this material, and they let him just go batshit crazy yeah i have like no fondness for that spider-man movie and he's incredible <laughs> i think that's a really great performance <laughs> in that yeah. Spider-Man movie, even if he's in it for like five minutes stops <laughs> i think it's worth noting too that this is one of giamatti's first if not his first leading role in a movie you know he he was like we mentioned there's a lot of actors in here who are now you know household or near household names doing kind of meaty screen work for the first time but paul giamatti you know he was one of those guys i first saw him in the truman show as a kid as you know a very bit role in movies like saving private ryan etc etc but this was i think to a normal kid or a a casual film viewing adult he's one of those like oh yeah what's that guy in kind of actors and so i think in some way you know you have to look at this and wonder like paul giamatti like did he see this role as like you know I got to nail this because this is my big break, you know? (laughs) Totally. And then two years later, he's headlining a Best Picture nominee in Sideways, you know? So he's one of those actors that I do love his career, but it's it's funny to think like, man, Big Fat Liar was his breakout, his legitimate leading breakout role. I mean, I think of, I thought of Sideways while watching this because it also, Sandra Oh is also in that movie. Both of these movies. Right. Alexander Payne watched this and he's like, oh, I'm... (laughs) <laughs> the earliest Paul Giamatti role I always think about is uh, his private parts. So it's actually he's really playing, <laughs> and in that he's also like an asshole producer. So interesting that like they they got two early like asshole producer roles out of him, but he does a really good job in this performance. Like you all were saying, he really goes all all out. There's like so much mugging, so much just like Slimehouse like yelling and all this stuff. It's just a really great comic performance for a movie that I like I'm watching this movie for the first time as an adult I hadn't seen it as a kid and like the whole time I was just like wow like, this is a really great comic performance from Paul Giamatti the note that I think really hammers in how stellar his performance is is gag of him being dyed blue by the kids because that's really in a lot of movies that could just be like a one scene one note joke but 
that joke is really extended over the course of like 20 minutes and over a couple locations over a couple scenes and it still works over all of them you know that this this like weirdo producer walking around town dyed blue <laughs> and getting into all these like funny situations that are funny in and of themselves but like the fact that he's blue you like forget oh ha, this is double funny because there's this little blue man uh, <laughs> walking around Beverly Hills. Yeah, I feel like his like his monkey he has, Mister Funny Bones, is also a real testament to his performance in this because like a, a bully or an adult or a tough guy like having a precious stuffed animal is like such a hack kind of family movie joke at this point. But like all the <laughs> scenes in which he was kind of like obsessed with keeping the monkey safe and all this stuff, like he just pulled it off really well and like made that joke even seem like fresh and funny. So yeah, I think major props to Paul Giamatti, maybe my favorite performance in the slime house movie. If wow. I had the pick and villains kind of having that soft spot for cute animals, whether it be, you know, a tender soft spot or a phobia like we saw with Magoogles mm-hmm. <laughs> um, in Max Keeble's Big Move. It's definitely probably a general comedy thing, but it's very, very prevalent in the slime house. Yeah, it feels like area. a kid's idea of like the most embarrassing thing is like you sleep with yeah. a stuffed animal. So like that's why I feel like yeah. it shows up so much in these slime house movies. Because like now I'd be like, who cares? But as a kid, you're like, oh, the bully sleeps with a teddy bear. <laughs> you have to give him an Achilles heel, and that's usually a really good one for that kids can relate to. And it, and it does make me just on Paul Giamatti in general. It makes me wish more actors who are good actors would just try a Slimehouse movie out. If you knew you're doing it, like you're a reindeer, you know, if you knew you're doing it, then <laughs> I think great actors can pull it off. And we'll see a few more at some point, but this is probably one of the best, like good, serious actor doing slime performances. I agree with you, Nelson. I think it would be so fun to see prestige actors or well-respected actors do more roles like this. But I do think, as we've discussed, doing movies like this are either kind of like an early on in your career, like Paul Giamatti, or it's kind of like a late career or career killing kind of role you might take. Like Eddie Murphy, as we said, could never really recover from his kind of Slimehouse bend. Because these movies are so poo-pooed by older viewers or snobby people because they don't have a sense of humor... You can see Joaquin Phoenix in Home Alone 5, maybe. You never know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, the money's there. And while we're on the subject of Paul Giamatti turning blue in his pool, his test screening for Avatar 2, (laughs) there's a big second wish fulfillment that happens in this movie that I think really sold us on the movie when we wanted to watch it as a kid, which is what I'm going to call the big plan, which is... In a short amount of time, the kids come up with, they steal his Palm Pilot, which is the the essential item that they need, and they wreak havoc on his life in the most calculated and, when you're a kid, the most awesome way possible, starting with dyeing him blue and then sending him on this total farce of a day that d- ruins his reputation and everything. And something about like kids being able to pull off that It sort of goes to that like prank mentality that I definitely thought was so cool. And this movie is like another type of wish fulfillment of like, oh, wouldn't it be awesome to like pull off all this stuff and get revenge on an asshole? Yeah, one of my favorite images from this movie, which to me is almost like a defining Slimehouse image, is the shot where Amanda Bynes, Frankie Muniz, and Donald Faison are walking towards the back lot, and it's all in slow-mo, and then they slowly put on sunglasses. Mm-hmm. And it's like one of those things where it's like straight out of an action movie, but also it's just like, when you're a kid, sunglasses are sick. Like, you love wearing sunglasses. And, you know, with just kind of some like drum and bass music in the background that was really popular back in, you know, the ni- late 90s, early 1000s, like... This is the kind of action movie that was popular, but a lot of kids could not see them. So like, oh, Big Fat Liar's sick, you know? And in that quick little 30 second image, it captures that mentality of like, kids are cool. Kids are the one, kids can do anything that adults can. 
Yeah, that's kind of exactly what I was thinking. Is that's very much like your idea of an action movie when like you're not allowed to watch big action movies yet. To like the sort of like walking away in slow motion, putting on the sunglasses. I feel like that's like how you always see action movies parodied as a kid. So like that, you're always so you see that and you're like, oh, this is like the cool stuff right here. <laughs> And with that, in this, this is very specific to this era because this is right when like technology's kind of becoming at your fingertips, but it's not quite as readily available as it is in our era now. And that cool sunglasses thing, I remember my sister and I watching The Matrix and we always thought Link and Tank were the coolest characters. They were like the hacker guys who like could put it all together. And later in the movie, the part of the big plan, like the, the, phase four of the big plan involves this like set room, which is all like techie and gear and all that. And there's a trope that we're going to see in a lot of movies. I know it's in like Catch That Kid and some other ones, but I'm, I'm just going to refer to it as like hacker energy, which is where it's like computers whizzing, like plans going crazy. And specifically the way it's done with music, this like boom, 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 you know, like tech no, but kids see like drum techno. and bass. Yeah. Drum and bass, yeah. And so that's all here more than I could ever remember in a way that like goes with that put on the sunglasses and it's so cool. And like the plan, the action, like the graphics on the computer, all that feels so slimehouse and so early 2000s in a way that we all thought was awesome at the time. That cyberpunk to drum and bass kind of feeling you wouldn't is, pirate is, a <laughs> yeah <laughs> is so reminiscent of that era anytime yeah. i hear a drum and bass song at this point i just think 1999 through 2002 yeah <laughs> and that pre-dvd thing about like you wouldn't download a car or whatever like <laughs> yeah. that is uh -huh. this in like a commercial form if you need a point of reference yeah, I feel like what I really loved about this big plan scene at the end, I think it's definitely like the, the centerpiece of the movie of this is, I like that like, again, I know I've brought the movie up a lot, but I, I don't know if it's just because I watched it, we watched it recently or because it's just kind of similar in vibe. It's, it reminded me a lot of the end of both Snow Day and Max Keeble's big move where it's like all these characters show up again that you've seen throughout the movie to get revenge on the big bad of the series mm -hmm. and of the film. So it's like, I love that in this end revenge against Marty, this big prank, you see like all the people he's been a dick to through the movie just sort of show up again and take their part in the revenge. Um, in particular, <laughs> there's one character I liked a lot. He's played by Lee Majors from the $6 million man, which I feel like is a very, he's not quite as big a star, but that really reminded me of the trend we've seen in a lot of these movies of bringing in these sort of like big Hollywood tough guys in these late roles. I mean, we had James Coburn and Snow Dogs, James Caan and Elf, um, Joe Pesci and Home Alone, most iconically, uh, Robert De Niro in a number of roles at this point, including War with Grandpa. But yeah, having bringing him in for this role as this sort of aging stuntman that is fears he's being replaced by effects and CGI for, <laughs> and, and like who gets revenge on the producer. I mean, I found it a little bit, honestly, like kind of moving to see him kind of get revenge on this character. I just thought that was a cool bit to put in there. It's sort of the practical effects versus like the new high tech CGI effects. I just thought that was an interesting conflict to put in here. And I love seeing him show up to, from that big parachute scene at the end. Heck yeah. And that scene where, uh, we're introduced to that character. Uh, I think this, this is what I mean when I say the Marty Wolf character seems like a specific F you to somebody in the industry. It's like, he, he makes a comment about how like CGI is a new thing and how like this is being filmed when like The Mummy Returns just came out and they had that awful Scorpion King CGI on the rock. <laughs> but like, there's that kind of interesting commentary that's legit. But also one thing that happens in that scene is that uh, Lee Majors has a relative that's throwing a birthday party and the kid's name is Aaron and he gets he has like a paper invitation that he sends to I think Marty or he just shows him it and it's like it says Aaron's party so I think you know there's the drum and bass music trend we've been talking about but then there's also the uh, 
bubblegum pop and boy band trends of that same time we were talking about. We were <laughs> hoping for Aaron Carter to show up at that birthday party scene, but yeah. alas, he did not. I was, yeah, I was, I was hoping was... that would be the titular party. <laughs> beep, beep. I... Have a good time. <laughs> yeah, I love that the stuntman, this old, crusty stuntman, is carrying around his kid's birthday <laughs> invitation to show him, and then when we get to that scene, it's like the most like bratty birthday party ever and you're like the stuntman was gonna take his kids to this party <laughs> yeah it's just like a clown like that that's something that felt very slimy to me too is paul yeah. giamatti shows up blue to this party and they all think he's the birthday clown which i know that, oh, oh, it's Go, 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 I mean, ghostbusters 2 has a big has a birthday party clown bit and i feel like it's something i can't think of any off the top of my head but I know I've seen like a dozen times at least, and it's done a very funny way here. And this is just one case, just also like the, all the people getting the revenge at the end, like the movie is all plant and payoffs in a really good way of like, it sets up these things that are going to go wrong later. And it's so fun to kind of go along with it. And like, yeah, he's dyed blue and then that's going to feed into this sent to the wrong place. And then he's the clown and all that. And then I have to give a shout out to there's a blink and you miss it cameo from at the birthday party there are two twins dressed as ninjas and they are played by houston and kanan hooker who are stunt kids seen in a lot of other movies including spy kids and jack frost they were friends with one of our regular listeners bobby konoski as a kid at newport and we knew them at chapman as well so shout out to the the hooker twins for their their ninja cameo in Big Fat Liar. Yeah, it's a personal connection there. Another uh, person that shows up in this revenge scene at the end that I think is very critical is uh, the actor Jaleel White, who's portraying himself in the movie. He's in the cop and chicken movie we've referred to throughout. <laughs> um, and the whole time he's just been pissed off that Marty Wolf has been calling him Urkel and making all these Urkel jokes, which apparently is based on, <laughs> apparently it was hard to convince him to be in this movie because he actually hates Urkel jokes that much. But I guess if he got to get revenge, maybe it was cathartic for him. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so Jaleel White shows up as himself uh, throughout the movie and he gets a good moment to get revenge on Marty. Um, Actually, a decent amount of cameos in this, which Ring is very slime to me. He's the most prominent, but also Dustin Diamond from Saved by the Bell, R.I.P., shows up for one good scene at the party, along with Keenan Thompson, who, of course, was in all that at the time, went on to be a big SNL star. Uh, Sean Levy, the director of the movie, shows up at an industry party, which I think both cements this movie's kind of slime house cred and also i feel like these hollywood movies are always super cameo filled i mean the player which i mentioned earlier i think is pretty much like there's at least like 50 big cameos in that movie so i feel like that kind of is something that kind of is interesting a shared trope between like hollywood satires and slime house which this is both so you get that for sure it's slime set boulevard <laughs> <laughs> Very good, very good. Hey, Marty, I like your new coloring. It works for you. You did this. Hiya. Call me. Big Fat Liar. We're moving into phase four. Back off, man! You know, they told me to pick up a little blue car. They didn't say anything about a little blue man. So what are you guys thinking for some true and honest slime scores here for Big Fat Liar? Mm, I see what you did there. Mm-hmm. Who wants to go first? I did have to like think think a little bit before giving it a slime score because like the the inside baseball kind of like Hollywood satire humor is not it isn't very Slimehouse on paper, but this movie really makes it work in tandem with Slimehouse. And I think some of the ways that the tropes appear and aren't quite the same way as in other movies like Keeble, uh, I think it has a really unique place in the Slimehouse canon, and I do think it's an essential work, so I can't see any reason not to give this a 10. Like Snow Day, I just think the point of view of this is just so true to Slimehouse and what the genre is, not just visually, but also thematically. Going into watching this, I was convinced it was a flat 10 because of how important it is for the Slimehouse world. And I stand by everything we've talked about. So my score might be a bit of a surprise, but I'm actually going to go 
with a nine. And I'll explain why. I think the beginning of the movie sets it up in a Slimehouse world so much, and it clearly is built on the back of Slimehouse as like the de facto genre for kids of the time. But I agree with you, Jared, that once we get into the Hollywood world, it has a slightly different direction. And I here's the way I'm going to break it down, is that if I were teaching someone who had never seen this genre before, what is Slimehouse, and I showed them Big Fat Liar first, I think they would miss a lot of the, the essential components of Slimehouse by a few notches. They'd be just like a couple degrees to the left of what it is, compared to if we started with Max Keeble, I think they would get everything they need to know about the genre. And so I was thinking about the other tens I have given, which I stand by, and I think that this one is just below it, still an amazing Slimehouse ride, and actually probably, I'll be honest, my favorite one we've watched so far on a personal level, including House Arrest, which I love. But I think that it's one notch away from a perfect slime score. Okay, yeah, I can, I'll kind of echo that. I'd never seen this movie. I'd always thought of it as such a key slime movie, and I do think it's a key slime movie, but watching it, I was surprised kind of by how much of just like a Hollywood satire this was. Like, a lot of moments of it, especially parts that weren't as focused on like the kid's point of view, a lot of the scenes where it was just Marty and his just going around like being an asshole to people on set, like really reminded me more of sort of a kitty version of like the player or ed wood or one something that was like hollywood real just like hollywood movies at that time and so i think i might actually have to well i still think this is a key slime house movie just as far as like to me gut feeling how slimy it is go with an eight just because i think it is a kid's point of view there's a lot of slimy humor in it and i do think like blue paul giamatti could be a a mascot almost <laughs> for slime <Yes>. house and, <laughs> <laughs> but like yeah a lot of the movie i feel like is more just kind of a inside Hollywood kind of meta satire kind of thing, which I do feel like is not a slimy genre at all. Even if you do a slime take on it, it can only be so slimy. So I'd have to go for an eight for Big Fat Liar. But I did love the movie, I will say. I'd never seen it before. One of the better movies I've watched for this podcast yet, I'd say. Yeah, I pretty much everything everyone has said, I totally echo. I struggled with this between a 9 and a 10. Until around the first birthday party scene, I was pretty convinced. You know, this missing like a couple ingredients, the biggest one for me being that kind of like gross out style humor. And those birthday party scenes, throw it in there. You could, you know, interpret, you know, the blue dying of Paul Giamatti as kind of its contribution to that style of, of humor. But at the same time, I, I like what you're saying, Nelson, specifically about if you showed this, if you if you had a pack of three or five starter pack that you were showing people, and this was one of them, I do think that they would miss some of kind of the hallmarks. And for that, I give it a very, very, very strong nine. This is about as high as you can go on the nine scale without a perfect score yeah um so and much love to this movie it's a blast um and it's by no means a lesser movie it's definitely a classic i feel like keeble is the one where it's like you watch that movie and you know what slime house is mm-hmm. and like i I, fe- I feel the way the way you guys are describing like what keeps us away from a 10 is how i felt about sharp boy and lava girl mm-hmm. which is you all gave that mm-hmm. a 10 i gave it an 8 so i guess this is a trade-off no, yeah, I think that's yeah. I think that's I think that's solid. Totally fair. And Jasper and I pretty much agreed on that. Like it's it's the highest nine I I will ever give. Um, and it, and I think it's just something after maybe because we've been watching a bunch of these, and I just felt like there was something throughout the middle and the Hollywood bulk of the movie that that I didn't see that. Um, yeah. Okay. But like the fact that they're making slimy movies within this made the hollywood satire thing in this feel not extraneous to the slime world in fact it felt it may feel like this is something you could watch and like better understand like how the sausage of slime house was made sure so to speak I'll, and that's totally, what i felt totally, while watching yes this. i'll give you that i think here's one way to explain it is like i gave snow day a 10 and i stand by that 10 because like you live in slime house world in this one and in this one you're almost like at the studio watching the slime house get made you're not like 
not always doing a slime house journey. Then in that case, I think that like Jared's point of this being like a really meta slime house movie is very sound in that I like what you say, Nelson, you're, you're quote unquote watching the slime house movie get made. And we talked, you know, Cat in the Hat, we said was a very meta slime house movie. It knew all the tropes of slime house and called them out. And for that, I think a lot of us gave it, you know, a perfect 10. And I think similarly in Big Fat Liar, even though it's a lot more subtle, I think because it does feel aware of of what a slime house movie is and what it you know entails narratively i do think that raises it to a higher bar i also think that in that same respect you need to preface this movie with a little bit of the genre before you could really fully understand it and i i feel that same way about the cat in the hat and the same way about adventures of shark boy and lava girl that you know, I, I think those movies don't necessarily work in a vacuum. I think they work in the context of this Slimehouse genre and of this era of filmmaking. Yeah. If you were to make Big Fat Liar in like the heyday of like Golden Age of Hollywood, <laughs> it just would be like pretty silly. Like if like Shirley Temple and Mickey Rooney were the leads and they were just running through, you know, like the Universal backlot and bumping into like Judy Garland from The Wizard of Oz, like, yeah, that'd be Slimehouse in its narrative sensibilities, but not in its kind of aesthetic sensibilities. It, within Slimehouse, there is a, like, there's Snow Day, there's Sharkboy and Lava Girl, and there's this. And I think this is a really happy medium of, like, the formal kind of Slimehouse that Sharkboy, like, the Robert Rodriguez movies are. And then Snow Day, which I felt like was a very, like, slice-of-life Slimehouse. Yeah. And this was, like, yeah. this this hit, like, a nice equilibrium between those two things for me. And, like... That's kind of why I feel as high on it as I do. I think it's slimier than some movies I've given a 10 out of 10 to, like Cat in the Hat, so. You know what? I might pull a reverse here. I might, if I if I may, I might bump this up to a 10 after yeah. this, this little discussion. I think that, yes, it's a, it, it feels like a 9, and yes, you can knock it for some of not having those things, but really the attitude of this whole venture is so Slimehouse, and it's from that mindset of you know kids can do anything wish fulfillment i don't think we need to relegate slime house to the suburbs i, I think shark point library is a really interesting comparison too because it's like it starts in the suburbs and then goes into planet drool literally you know this starts in the suburbs and goes to hollywood so you know what jared you convinced me bumping this up to a 10 yeah, and I promise I'm not just piggybacking, I'm bumping up to a 9. Not quite a 10, but a 9 from an 8 after that discussion. Because I feel like I had a similar difficult time deciding with Airborne, which much less slimy movie than this, because it's not really a type of slime we've seen before on this podcast. And I don't really know if there is another Slimehouse movie like Big Fat Liar, so I was just having a hard time really placing it, because mm -hmm. it's such a strange hybrid between Slimehouse and, like, inside Hollywood satire kind of like movie. But yeah, after that discussion, I feel like I'm comfortable bumping it up to a little bit higher, bumping it up to a nine, because it still really does really epitomize that wish fulfillment, which I think is maybe the key perspective of Slimehouse. And this definitely, definitely features that. So, And we didn't talk about this too much, but like it's a very anti-authoritarian movie, which mm -hmm. Jared always brings up. Yeah, I mean... Shoot, I'm just thinking about like it. It's bookended by Smash Mouth and the Baja Man. I think you know when you're watching Best Picture nominees, and you're like, okay, this is gonna be a great movie. Let's do it, you know. And then it's like not as great of a movie as you think. I I was sort of like, okay, this is gonna be a ten out of ten slime house. And then I was sort of looking for some of the things that like I was like, yeah, that that's not as slimy as I as I thought it would be, knowing that it started at that high pedestal. I still think some of that like E T like access hollywood stuff doesn't always ring as slimy as it could so you don't need to bump it up no <laughs> yeah no I, I, i'm just saying this was a tough nine to give i, th I yeah. think it's yeah i think it's a brilliant slime house movie but it's it's not necessarily as 10 out of 10 slime house to me as some of the other titles that we've gone through. Yeah, I feel like uh, the only thing that keeps me from giving it a 10 is that like while all the slime stuff is there, I feel like there's also a lot more kind of non-slime humor and themes than usually are in these movies. So even if all the slime stuff is also there, the fact that there's also more non-slime humor and the like is what kind of brings it down a little bit. Just the littlest bit for me. Mm -hmm. Maybe if, if it was like about 10-year-olds, not 14-year-olds. Like, there's something 
I don't know. It's it's not as like dopey or like the parents are not buffoons. You know, there, there are things like that that I'm like, oh, like you could go further on the slime meter if you wanted to. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes totally, sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I totally agree with that. And shoot, maybe I'll bump it down to a nine again. But, <laughs> um, uh, anyway, it's I'm a good. Gonna, it, I'm gonna make it a. I'm gonna make it our first nine and a half. <laughs> yeah, um, I think that's fine. And I I love this movie, and I think it's a great Slimehouse time. I I still give it a nine, and a nine's a freaking high score. So no, for nonetheless. Sure, for sure. I I think we've spent so much time this season on like the like the movies we wanted to cover when we first brainstormed this and like i think we've given so many tens out we i think at this point we are kind of like after enough time you have sort of this expectation of what a slimehouse movie is i feel like this movie approaches slimehouse in an angle that i think is unique Mm -hmm. in a way that i think it, it makes sense that it wouldn't be a perfect slime score for some folks but for me that unique angle it comes from makes it stand out and just be very special in the slimehouse world so um, that's where I'll leave it. So that wraps up a really fascinating discussion on Big Fat Liar. Again, thanks to everyone who loves this movie and so glad we covered it. It's definitely an essential Slimehouse movie, even if it wasn't a flat 10 across the board. And next week, we're doing our second round of birthday picks because we've got a Taurus birthday in the mix, Mr. Jasper Birnbaum picking our next movie and a um, bullish pick everyone <laughs> and you know having known jasper a long time i i have a hunch as to what he's picked so i i want to take a before he think? reveals i want to i want to guess a we movie do a round of guesses all three of you can take a guess yeah all right i'll go first and based on like a movie that I know is a favorite of Jasper's and that probably wouldn't get bumped up to the top otherwise, but is definitely like Slimehouse vein. I'm going to guess your pick is Mouse Hunt. Jared? I remember having a conversation with you about another DreamWorks movie around the same time that you like apparently like you cut out like articles and then like a newspaper to try and convince your parents to take you to see it. <laughs> And so I'm. My guess is Small Soldiers. Ooh, that's a good guess. Two right. very good guesses. I Max. was thinking Monkey Bone, perhaps, <laughs> just because I know wow. just just recently we've had some Monkey Bone discussion, and I know that's one that might not be a top pick draft normally. So. Ah, three good guesses, but I have to say, one of you is correct. Oh, sweet. <laughs> It is Mouse Hunt. Is my oh, favorite. hell yeah. 1997. It's a, a personal um, favorite of mine, too. So. Definitely a personal favorite of mine. Many VHS watches. And uh, I'm going to be uh, having a special guest on the show. Jared had his sister on for Hop. I'm going to be inviting my sister, Hannah, on uh, to join us for the show because we've watched it together many, many times. So um, look, Sweet. look forward to that next week. Awesome. Can't wait. And until then, everyone, stay slimy. Slimehouse, a podcast created by Jared Anderson, Jasper Birnbaum, Max Morris, and H. Nelson Tracy. Visit us on the web at slimehousepod.com. Our website is created by Brian Hume of Valencia Creative Co. Theme music composed by Greta Russell. If you like what you hear, support this podcast at anchor.fm slash slimehousepod or by following us on social media at SlimehousePod.